0: Episode of Public Problems. Again today, I'm with a few Bush School students who are working on their Master's in Public Service and Administration, and for a course they uh, were stuck taking with me. Um, they had to do a half-semester research project that uh, of their choosing. So we'll tell you a little bit more about that as we get started, but I'd like the group to have an opportunity to introduce themselves.
1: Hi, my name is James McKenzie.
2: I'm John Thompson. I'm Song Yi
0: my name is Ellie Hooper. So, your project is titled The Opioid Crisis in Texas. And um, when I gave you this assignment, you were able to pick any topic that you wanted, anything that could broadly be defined as a public problem. And so, just to get us started, I was curious why the group decided on the opioid crisis, and particularly in Texas.
3: So more broadly on the national scale, we chose the opioid crisis because um, so many people are affected by it. As we all individually started chatting about issues that affect us, we could all think of someone in our lives who um, were impacted by the opioid crisis in some way, whether that's losing a family member or friend um, due to an overdose, um, or they themselves are affected by um, that addiction. Um, So actually 13.3 deaths per 100 per 100,000 people happen um, because of opioids each year in America. Um, that's from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Um, and then more specifically, um, we this issue kind of became – Really prolific in the media when recently in 2017, the president actually declared it a public health emergency and allocated um, nearly $1 billion in grant money um, for prevention and treatment. So this led us to really evaluate how this money is being used and how it, it could better be used.
2: And then specifically in relation to why we chose Texas, because it's interesting, Texas has one of the lower um, opioid death rates in the nation. It's at 4.7 deaths per 100,000, so well below that number of 13.3 that Ellie just mentioned. But what we were concerned about as we got more into this and looking at specifically Texas is that this is kind of a problem that's hiding under the surface. Um, I feel like and we feel like that lawmakers and people tend to be more reactionary than preventive and that lawmakers will react when there's high death rates, which is not occurring in Texas, but there's a lot of issues related to treatment problems. So there's well over 11,000 people treated annually just by state funded and licensed treatment centers in Texas there's fears among experts that the death rate which has continued to rise every year for opioids in Texas will continue to do so and then it might even increase in the future because of an influx of different types of opioids that may hit the state as mexican drug cartels kind of shift production from less um, effective or less profitable types of opioids to more profitable ones, particularly fentanyl, which is hitting the East Coast particularly hard. So the worry is that that is going to, um, that these Mexican cartels, that they're going to increase production of fentanyl and push it across the border, and that Texas experts are saying that we're just not prepared for anything like this, that we've just been kind of dealing with this passively. So that's why we were focused on Texas. We thought it'd be interesting to tackle a state that hasn't seen high death rates, but needs to take steps towards prevention and treatment versus other states, maybe like on the East Coast, that are seeing enormously high death rates.
0: Excellent. Yeah, I think the, I'm sure we'll get to it, but the fentanyl is some scary stuff. I mean, when you talk about opioids or hear people talking about it, um, fentanyl, as I understand it, you know the forget the term for how much of something you have to have for it to, to kill you. There's like these different measures going all the way from like, Tobacco and marijuana and, and alcohol to think to cocaine and then this fentanyl. It's like the amount you can have like dust on you, and it can be really, uh, really dangerous, as I understand it.
2: Well, that's interesting. Just to kind of just mention one thing, there was a recent um, report by the Austin Statesman, a newspaper, where uh, a police officer in Travis County happened to touch just a flyer that was laced with the dust of fentanyl, hospitalized for weeks and almost killed him. So
0: to your yeah. to your point. Mm-hmm which brings up some enforcement questions and safety concerns as well as part of this. Um, well, before we dive into the, I guess, the specifics of what you identify as some of the core problems here and some of the solutions, give me a little bit of background on the uh, opioid crisis. Um, opioids weren't always one of the main drugs we were talking about. I mean, if you go back to the 70s and 80s, it's more about marijuana. It's more about crack and cocaine. And so when did this become an issue and what happened?
1: Sure. So I'll step in here to give us a brief categorizing of opioids in general. As John just briefly mentioned, there has... um, been a rise in the threat of white powder heroin um, surfacing in Texas in particular as Mexico starts to transition to that more. Up until this point, Texas has seen mostly uh, black tar heroin as the uh, main drug of use, and white powder heroin is easier to lace with fentanyl. Um, So as Texas starts to transition more into white powder heroin, we could see potentially an increase in more overdose deaths because that's a, a very hazardous combination of fentanyl-laced heroin. Um, so the drug enforcement agency, the DEA, has a schedule for how they classify different levels of opioids um, according to um, how addictive they are and how um, whether they're legalized for medical use or not. So heroin whether in the black tar or white powder form, is a Schedule I drug, which means it is illegal for use and has no medical purposes in the United States. Fentanyl, on the other hand, would be scheduled as a type 2 drug. Um, Fentanyl also has other prescription names such as Actic and Sublimase. Um, These have medical uses. Um, However, they are highly uh, addictive and have high potential for abuse. Um, We finally have a third category, which is just other prescription opioids. And these have seen a rise in recent decades. Some examples include oxycodone and its prescription name Percocet, hydrocodone, and its uh, prescription name Vicodin. Um, These have seen a rise, particularly due to some historical events. And um, we're going to transition now into talking about that history.
3: So tying back into... Um, you know why there is currently an epidemic. Um, it's it's quite interesting as we started to really dive deep into that. Um, in the 1980s and 90s, a lot of pharmaceutical companies and patient advocates began to report that doctors were were actually under treating for pain and were over worrying about addiction, um, which led to doctors actually prescribing more opioids for very common issues um, such as back pain or arthritis. So there was a spike in um, the number of opioids that were um, prescribed there. Um, And then in addition to that, in 1995, the American Pain Society actually advocated for pain to become a vital sign, um, along with checking blood pressure, pulse, heart rate, temperature. So you can imagine that is a bit controversial, um, considering my pain tolerance may be higher than, you know, Troy's pain tolerance. Um, And then that's also something that's hard to measure because it's just directly, you know, whatever the patient is saying their pain level is, um, there's really no way of determining that aside from a patient communicating that. Um, And then Medicare and Medicaid funding actually was partially linked to patient satisfaction with pain relief um, following that, which increased incentives for doctors to prescribe more opioids. Um, So that was a little bit of a controversial past. Um, And then Around 2010, the U.S. experienced a very large increase in heroin-related deaths due to restrictions on opioids. So following this kind of overprescribing, heroin, as Jimmy mentioned, is largely more available and a little bit cheaper than other opioids, making it more accessible. Um, And then in 2013, opioid abuse um, began to be largely related to synthetic drugs such as fentanyl, which we will touch we will touch on, um, and that is kind of where we are now. Is that that has continued to increase?
0: So, just to recap the timeline to make sure I understand, there was concern in the '80s that doctors weren't treating pain seriously enough. Correct. And so, there's a ramp up, in part response to that, maybe in part response to other things that we might take that we might discuss about or talk about. And so then really 80s, early 90s, up through maybe mid-2000s, there's this trend of prescribing a lot more opiates and uh, opioid-based pain medication. And then as there was pushback on the amount of that and the restrictions, there were more restrictions in the supply and the ease in which those were prescribed, that because of the addictive nature of the opioid prescriptions, people turn to other types of drugs, these synthetic drugs, things on the black market, to uh, to deal with the addiction. So we we led up to having maybe a, what is arguably, I think, um, overprescription, and then trying to rein that back in has these kind of secondary and tertiary effects. A lot of overdoses, a lot of people turning to things they don't really understand or aren't as well regulated on the black market it hits these communities in, in devastating force. It's uh, particularly, I think, in the, in the Midwest had uh, a lot of cases of this, sort of in the South as well, in, in the mountainous areas. Maybe you can tell me more about where else it it uh, was concentrated. And then the, the Trump administration decides that this is a health crisis and allocates, how much did you say? Uh, it's like a, several billion. several billion dollars. So where is it, where are we now? What has, uh, how, um, how, what are we doing now to try to tackle this as a response with that money?
4: We use um, the money to, um, the um, government as support this uh, program like MAT. MAT. Uh-huh. Like that's the medicaid assistive treatment. Um, they use um, substance, they use medication to treat substance abuse disorder. Like um, methadone, buprenorphine, and nitrosone.
0: So there's there are certain ways to kind of treat the addiction mm-hmm. uh, with through Medicare. You said
4: yeah, 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 okay. but they are lack of funding.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the way in which this has been treated, either as a criminal issue or a public health issue. And so one of the things I know you talk about in your report um, is. Not just the history of the opioid use, but how um, enforcement associated with it so tell me a little bit about that
2: yeah so um, throughout throughout the US history with opioids just on a national level and then maybe we can squeeze down to Texas mm-hmm. um, on the national level specifically as referenced I believe you already did the war on drugs substance abuse was always seen at least historically as an issue that you enforced that you, if you stopped people if you cut off the supply that then there wouldn't be this problem of people overdosing and dying. There would to be these arrests that were related to substance abuse or opioid abuse. And so that that was part of the war on drugs. Um, Fast-forwarding to nowadays, um, lawmakers have realized that maybe focusing just on enforcement has not been the most effective, um, especially in more probably conservative states uh, like Texas, where enforcement has been the focal point. Um, there's experts who have said, like, they're unable to get their clients' services unless they first put them in prison because that's the way that Texas's judicial and justice system is arranged. It's arranged to find, prosecute, and then incarcerate versus find, get them to a treatment center because a lot of their violations might be related to this substance abuse. Um, and instead what happens is this enforcement puts them into the justice system and then just continually cycles them in and out. And they never receive the help that they need um, so enforcement, while you can argue has been um, maybe successful in some respects, um, it hasn't It hasn't helped to attack the real problem of people are using substances, they're getting addicted, and then they just can't get away from it. And so it's just a perpetual cycle that they get stuck in.
0: Yeah, it seems to me that part of the challenge up until recently, as with the broader war on drugs has been this being treated as a criminal issue rather than a public health issue. That's there great. seems to be some changing of the conversation at least more recently with it being more of a public health issue.
2: No, you're right. Um, what's interesting and maybe we'll talk later about this but like for example at the national level the Senate and the House have recently passed a comprehensive or they're getting close to passing a comprehensive bill related to the opioid epidemic and the opioid crisis and a lot of that funding isn't going towards enforcement anymore it's going towards prevention it's going towards treatment. It's going towards helping um, at-risk populations, so those who are poor or don't have health insurance, making sure that they have access to treatment facilities and the funds that they need to actually get that treatment. So there's that shift. And even at the state level, um, Texas is looking more at, instead of enforcing, they want doctors to check before they prescribe opioids. They won't, So they're requiring, them, um, starting next year in 2019, that every doctor who is going to prescribe an opioid... They have to go into Texas's uh, prescription management program, and they have to look at the patient's history and make sure that there is no substance abuse um, indicated before they prescribe that opioid.
1: Something else that I wanted to mention in terms of the regional differences that you brought up earlier across the country, so just some specifics with uh, locations, the area of like the Appalachian Mountains has a large um, history with opioid abuse. Also, the Northeast, um, particularly the state of Vermont. Um, which actually has a successful combat story to opioid addiction, which we'll bring up later in our report. Um, But particularly for prescription opioids in general, that's what has proliferated this issue to become a national uh, concern for everybody. Because as doctors are prescribing more and more of these medications, you have... Uh, greater potential for folks such as children to get access to their parents' medicine cabinet and abuse these drugs. Um, You get the potential for people to have long amounts of time that they stay on Vicodin, for example, um, and are misusing the original prescription amount. Um, So that's really what has made this an issue that's across the country affecting several different populations and age groups.
0: What are, before we move on to... Uh, who all was involved in this. And I guess this is kind of a lead-up to it. But with some types of drugs, we have evidence of um, who is harmed by them, I suppose. And so you look back to the war on drugs, there's this classic divide between blacks and whites on um, uh, crack and cocaine. Um, is there... What are the demographics of this? I mean, you mentioned the regions. Um, and in the Appalachia area and in the New England area, are they? is this affecting, you know, groups of, demographically, all kinds of groups? Is it affecting young and old? You mentioned it spans across ages. Does it span across kind of race and gender as well, or is it more targeted for a specific type of person?
1: I think um, something that we focused on definitely in this report is the, um, the difference between how it impacts cities and rural areas. Mm. Um, so that's definitely a demographic that um, is of concern, particularly for rural areas. And we're going to talk about this when we get into our administrative problems. But there are definitely a lack of access to medically assisted treatment, as Troy brought up earlier. Um, some of these facilities are several hours drive away. And so folks in rural areas are particularly impacted by um, if they are uh, classified as opioid use disorder, Um, they do not have quick and easy access to getting help, to getting medically assisted treatment. And that's been a really big issue that we've seen across the state of Texas in particular. So how can we increase access to treatment for folks who are in rural areas?
3: And touching on that as well, um, we will mention this later on in our report, but there really is, I think just by following the um, mainstream conversation around it. Um, it is coined by actually the White House committee, The Crisis Next Door. So their whole point is it does really, really affect um, all ages, all different socioeconomic backgrounds, and both genders. Um, however, there is a lack of data on exactly who it affects, which is a part mm-hmm. of our report. Um, there's a lack of information. There's a lot, a lack of science-based evidence. Um, and a one of our proposed solutions um, is, is – kind of focused on getting better data so that we can really pinpoint which populations is this really affecting? Is there a certain age or, or demographic that needs to be targeted? So we'll get more into that.
0: Excellent. Let's keep tricking along then. Um, one <clears throat> one final piece before we get into your kind of core administrative and political issues is uh, thinking about who all the stakeholders are. So one set is the people who are addicted, right? Uh, which is one that we've been mentioning, but who else has a hand or who else has a stake in this this crisis?
1: I can take that one. So, for our key stakeholders, we have chosen to focus, as I mentioned, on um, how opioid affects opioid use disorder affects city governments in particular, and not only just cities, but how cities partner with county level support and state level support within the state of Texas. So, those are our primary. Um, stakeholders. We want to talk directly to cities and give them policy advice on how to handle this for their particular situation, whether it's a big city or a small town. Um, there are a lot of secondary um, stakeholders with this issue. Just to name a few, we have nonprofit organizations, which is a huge focus of our solutions section. Um, how can local city governments partner with nonprofit community groups to provide good access to treatment? Obviously, opioid users are going to be impacted by our policy recommendations. Um, This includes folks. We have to remember that some folks are using opioids legally um, within the recommended use of their doctors. So we don't want to um, necessarily over abuse regulation because there are legitimate needs for opioids. Um, Obviously, the drug companies that are producing opioids and the medical professionals that are prescribing them need to be aware of these regulations. Um, John already touched on police enforcement, and um, we're going to talk about something called drug courts in a little bit, as well as um, the general public has a vested interest in knowing about this crisis, how it can impact folks in their community, and even possibly how they can volunteer to help.
0: So before we move on from that, do you think any, or did you talk about any report, do you so we just having a conversation for a a different episode about the weird incentives that different actors have in perpetuating some of these problems and so um are there any stakeholders in this situation that have incentives to um to not change have incentives to kind of follow the current path? And and are these roadblocks to reform? So the most straightforward one might be um, uh, drug companies, right, is the one you hear about popularly, right? So drug companies, to make a profit, need to sell a lot of their product, and so it's in their interest to try to sell as much as possible. So do you see any perverse incentives or weird incentives that are potential roadblocks to reform in this area among your stakeholders?
3: So we didn't specifically focus on that in our report. I think there could be a whole other report really just on that. But as you mentioned, the very obvious one would be drug companies. They um, probably do not want opioids to stop being prescribed because um, that is the source of their livelihood. Um, however, another thing to really look at, which I believe Jimmy touched on, is making sure that those who do need opioids for legitimate pain reasons are still able to receive opioids um, and are able to live pain-free um, without having to um, suffer because some are abusing this drug. Um, so that's another issue to really look into that we we didn't get a chance to dive into, but something to consider. Or maybe
4: the hospital? Uh, we mentioned on the, our report that they are um, under-reporting about the um, opioid death, so maybe the hospital will um, increase their burdens, so maybe there can be a... Mm.
0: So even another issue is underreporting by the hospitals mm-hmm. when people come in for opioid uh, treatment or, or, or die while in the hospital. Yeah. Um,
1: I think one more thing I'll bring up about that issue which has been interesting is the folks who are advocating for legal marijuana usage. Um, because that could be considered a way of like pain release or um, a way to have medically assisted um, pain relief. So um, they're not necessarily going against the grain, like you mentioned, but they are another subset group that one might not have originally considered um, when considering opioid use.
0: Yeah, one of my uh, good friends is a researcher by the name of David Bradford at University of Georgia. And he did some of the early work on looking at what are the substitution effects mm-hmm. from opioids yeah. to, uh, to marijuana or to cannabis if you legalized it for medical purposes. Mm-hmm. And they found, him and his co-authors found two things that are, are relevant here, I think. One is that in states that did legalize uh, medical usage, opioid deaths do go down. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. People do substitute over to marijuana and it, isn't as uh, likely to kill you in the same way. Sure. Um, and then the second thing they found, which is kind of interesting from a financing perspective, is that in states where, uh, uh, where cannabis was legalized for medical purposes, Medicare, uh, there were uh, spending savings across Medicare and Medicaid as people substituted uh, for the mm-hmm. types of treatments you would expect pain and others. There's cost savings, so both reduced debts and uh, cost savings as part of legalizing cannabis as a substitution effect for the opioid. Yes. So there there is some decent empirical research on this. Okay, so let's jump right into your issue. So tell me in any order that you like. You have a few here. So what did you identify as some of the core administrative and political issues that we need to address for this?
2: Yeah, so let me just give you a quick rundown of what those might be. So um, the big three that we really came to conclusion in this report was that there's a lack of availability and awareness of treatment, um, especially in terms of awareness for users knowing about treatment options. Um, another issue was um, inaccurate reporting and a lax reporting standards that affect information and cause some interesting information gaps. And then the third was uh, worries about community partnerships and the lack of them, especially between local governments and other institutions like uh, nonprofits um, or other com- community partners. In Texas, there's 89 licensed narcotic treatment centers. These are places that do that medicated assist- assisted treatment that Troy talks about. Um, and they're primarily concentrated in high population areas, makes sense, uh, but it leaves massive gaps in rural, rural areas. Um, there's a Piece on this map from Travis County to El Paso County, where there's just this, this, this massive stretch of counties that have no narcotic treatment centers that are state licensed or funded. Um, additionally, drug courts, which are an interesting option, especially for those who are arrested in opioid-related violations, um, drug courts allow those arrested to be put into a program that provides uh, essentially court-guided um, rehabilitation and behavioral um, courses to help them break the addici- addiction and hopefully not go back to crime again. Um, but there's only 93 courts, and both of these, there's only 58 counties in the state that have one or both of these options open to users.
0: There's a real challenge with just, when you look at this map, I know the oh, listeners can't see it, but you know vast swaths of Texas it's, have zero or one court or one center, but the overwhelming majority have Zero, right? For oh, it's, large parts of the state.
2: It's just, it's just crazy. And while it may reach most, a decent amount, it, it probably reaches more than half the population. There's still a large portion of the population, a large minority that doesn't have access, which isn't fair to them.
0: Yeah, and this gets back at something we were talking about earlier, which is the the difference in attacking this problem for urban areas versus yep. rural areas, yep. particularly on this access, on this question of availability.
2: Yeah, the sad thing is, though, that regardless of whether it's rural or urban, we're still seeing that the medicated-assisted treatment at these centers isn't being fully used. Um, it's proven very effective in other states. Um, there's a report that shows that that was done in 2009 when it was first instituted in Baltimore that led to a 37% drop in um, opioid overdose deaths. And we're like, why isn't that not being used here in Texas? Because only 14% of those treated at these centers receive medicated-assisted treatment, which is in our opinion, we saw as a major issue. Yeah.
0: So there's not only just low availability and awareness of the treatment centers and the drug courts, there's also not high adoption of the financing tools that are there in the programs yeah. to
2: practice. Yeah,
0: <laughs> of effective practices. So. Okay. All right, that's frustrating. What's next? What else do we have here?
2: So the other issue was... Um, we found that there is problems with information. Ellie touched on this, and it's frustrating to policy administrators and makers that when you don't have information, you can't make accurate decisions that help you to help your communities. Mm-hmm. So we found a couple things. One, um, there's discrepancies in how counties report um, opioids and how the state reports opioids. So, for example, um, Texas Department of Public Safety, the way they report opioids and relation to arrest violations, is they bundle it with cocaine, they bundle it with other drugs, and then they just have a synthetic category. So you can't ever, you can't really get a sense of what is the actual effect of opioids by itself without um, other drugs, not in relation to other drugs. Um, The other issue, and this is one of my favorites, is uh, the medical examiners. So in Texas, there is state law and regulations that require counties do have medical examiners. Now the only counties that are required are those that have a million or more people and there's five counties in the state that have a million or more and then outside of that there's a couple other counties that have created medical examiners and these medical examiners it's actually an office of people who they go ahead and they investigate suspicious deaths including drug overdoses before they sign off on a death certificate and there's 13 medical examiner offices in the state of Texas. There's 244 counties So you can think about Mm -hmm. how much they can actually cover. The interesting part, though, is that when there is not a medical examiner present, and these are medically trained people who would request toxicology reports if they suspected an overdose, that the justice of the peace, who is not medically trained, takes on those responsibilities of deciding to sign a death certificate or not and to request a toxicology report or not. And so there's concern, and experts have pointed this out, that these untrained justices of the peace when it comes to medical purposes that they're misidentifying deaths, that they're missing opioid-related deaths because opioid deaths look like respiratory failure. Mm-hmm. And so that is one big concern. Um, that, and the idea is that maybe laws need change and regulations, but we'll touch on that when we talk about maybe proposed solutions. Mm-hmm.
0: Any other uh, kind of core administrative or political issues that you think we should highlight?
2: The last one I would highlight personally would be the community partnerships. Mm -hmm. Um, Once again, going back, there's not a lot of data. There's no big database that says these are the community partnerships and this is what cities are working with what organizations. We've just seen looking at a couple cases um, that there seems to be a lack of government connection with other organizations. So, for example, at the University of Texas, there is a student-led drive to try and reduce overdose. Um, It's Austin. Uh, They have... Travis County has a lot of deaths related to substance abuse, especially opioids. And students were concerned about overdose. So they led a drive to train themselves on how to use overdose drugs to help prevent an overdose when somebody had. And what was interesting is we looked at this little study, this little kind of case, and we noticed that the students reached out to like a professor or a fellow student who was employee at a pharmacy to train them on how to use this, and that the city was not involved at all, that there was no EMS personnel, there was no law enforcement personnel, there was just nobody from the city there to say, hey, here's the drugs, this is how you use them, this is when you should use them, and here is also some funding or some support that we can provide you to help reduce this. Because you're assuming that the student population in Austin, Texas, makes up a decent amount um, of those living there. So that was one concern that we noticed.
0: Excellent. So we have issues of availability, of general, uh, and, and that differs across area in which you live, rural and urban, awareness, um, which probably differs across a number of variables, but my mm-hmm. guess is rural and urban, also probably across income level and education. Um, we have this concern with data collection. Um, we don't really know what's going on all the time um, and some ways that um, seems like we could collect better basic information and then we have some challenges with community partnerships where there's maybe not anyone spearheading them from the government and there. While grassroots is, is good and desirable in lots of ways, we might really want more strengthening among community partners. Mm-hmm. So how do we solve these things? What do you have for solutions?
4: Um, the first, we will say um, expense access to government-supported treatment. Um, when we talk about a Medicaid-assisted treatment program. Um, We want to go deeper on this. Um, So this is the program, not only um, effective, but also very safe. Um, Patients can take medications for months, years, or even a lifetime. Um, But um, they can only um, stop when they consult with the doctor. Mm -hmm. So the second program we um, um, present is needle exchange program. Um, This is a program... um, Exchange use needles for um, never used sterile ones um, that can only not only um, prevent the spread of infectious diseases and also prevent the overdoses because they can um, patients can have connection um, with people who um, can provide guidance for um, addiction recovery and the sec- um, the third um, program we will talk about is the um, drug course we mentioned um before. But um, let's go back to the needle exchange program. Um, in Texas, um, the, the Bexas county, um, they reached the first success and they issued an amendment um, to start this needle exchange program. But the DA, um, he asserted uh, she. A she, sorry. He, she asserted that the users of this program would not be shielded from a criminal prosecution. For processing a drug, so um, this might actually discourage um, patients to be involved in those programs. Um, so we need okay. to yeah. <laughs> so we need to provide an alternative to incarceration, such as drug courts. Mm-hmm. Um, but John mentioned that it's um, lacking funding, um, and drug courts is very expensive. Um, according to data, um, drug courts can cost. Over one hundred and fifty thousand dollars per year, and Texas, um, for the twenty seventeen to twenty eighteen fiscal year, they only have two million for drug courts, and um we have like ninety three courts. That's like um, twenty one thousand per court. That's like yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's yeah. a lot of courts, but lack of funding.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So. Can part of this funding be addressed with the money that the Trump administration has dedicated towards this? Do, we, do you know if that's a use
4: of the, a potential use of the resources? Um, Trump administration only, um, like since April 2017, they um, gave $800 million to the um, drug abuse, but not only to the drug courts. Okay. So it's like a like, still-like funding.
1: Uh, there is a lot of information actually for community nonprofit groups that apply to grants from the president's allocation of funds, and that's more of a nonprofit sector role. But um, there are a lot of nonprofit groups, particularly that are interested in community-based recovery, setting up networks of support um, that have applied to the federal grants to get money. But that's more on a nonprofit level rather than specifically for government.
2: If I can add it to that, um, I mean, Texas did recently... Um, Receive a grant for about $27 million to put towards um, abuse, but it was substance abuse on the whole. Um, and so the issue is, as Troy mentioned, like this last year's budget only allotted like $2 million for drug courts. And Harris County, it costs $2 million to run their six drug courts. So um, I really think, um, but without, without looking at the specific data, I think that those grants are getting split up among all the agencies and the departments and that they're getting put towards things that those agencies and those departments feel like are important issues and it may not specifically be opioid related. Okay, what else?
3: So jumping into more of the struggles with inaccurate data, and um, we have a couple of proposed solutions. Um, one would be basically enabling the sharing of real-time data and information so that that way these science-based um strategies for combating this can be shared very easily between the federal level, state level, and then down to the counties so they are able to communicate um, best practices for this. Um, that would be one proposed solution. And then following that, um, as we kind of already touched on, would be just ensuring we have up to date statistics on exactly how this crisis is affecting specific communities. Um, So actually, the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, um, is working to provide funding for certain states to implement effective methods of data collection through grants. Um, So that would be a solution for Texas um, that that would be worth considering. Um, And that is focusing specifically on science-based prevention strategies. Um, And then in addition to that, we mentioned Um, medical legal death investigation regulations. So um, that's an issue. Um, As John mentioned, we have the Justice of the Peace out trying to determine, you know, whether or not a death is drug-related. So ensuring that we have statewide standards on every county having accurate reporting for these deaths and the cause of death. Um, And then following that... um, Gathering more information on illicit drug use through arrestee drug abuse monitoring programs, or ADAM is the acronym, um, and this basically takes into consideration the fact that the population of people who are typically being arrested um, are going to have usually higher usages of drug that, drugs than the average citizen. Um, so using this as a sample population and evaluating um, upcoming trends in drug use, exactly where these drugs are coming from, um, specific things. So as of right now, when people are arrested, typically federally funded programs um, allow for an interview to take place. So they're usually asked, you know, are you are you currently taking any drugs or, you know, abusing drugs? Well, you can imagine that they're likely going to say no um, just via interview. So Um, We are proposing potentially using urine samples whenever folks are arrested to determine exactly what type of drugs they've been using, so that way we have more accurate real-time data on new drugs entering the market, where they're coming from, specific demographics that they may target, um, things like that.
1: And I'm the uh, community partnership um, advocate here, so I'm going to talk about some really uh, great work that's been done in the state of Vermont that Texas is actually really well-suited to adopt. So the National League of Cities ran a report, a really um, thorough report about the state of Vermont and how it has combated its high opioid use disorder crisis. So Vermont has created a very successful model. It's called the hub and spoke model. Essentially, as we've talked about in several other points, medically-assisted treatment is a very effective method of treating opioid abuse disorder. Um, Therefore, we're advocating for more medically assisted treatment facilities. Not only that, but um, the government has already in place 11 different regional centers. They're called OSARS. OSAR stands for Outreach, Screening, Assessment, and Referral Centers. And these are put on by the Texas Department of Health and Human Services. So these 11 different regions are very similar to Vermont's five different service regions as well. Um, Each region has a hub. When you are in need of medical-assisted treatment, depending on what region you live, you go to the hub. When you go to the hub, you're going to get um, high-intensity medically-assisted treatment. Um, There's staff that specialize in emergency addiction treatment, um, and that's the primary place where you're gonna get your first um, um, round of addiction treatment. After you've gotten your initial high-intensity treatment, That's where you're supposed to get connected to the spokes. The spokes are the local community centers that are partnered with the hubs in providing um, continued maintenance support for MAT, providing you to connections with nurses, counselors, nonprofits that provide support. So um, Vermont has very successfully connected spokes to the hub throughout the state. Um, As we've already mentioned, Texas has some issues with the access to these regional centers. There's 11 regions. Vermont has five. Texas is 28 times as big as Vermont, um, yet we only have 11. Um, and Vermont has five, like I just mentioned. So that's that's an issue right there. Um, there's different community uh, partnership groups that are already doing a lot of great work in advocating for um, counseling support. So it's a, a well-rounded model of treatment. It's not just about medically assisted treatment, but it's getting you connected to long-term sobriety. So um, there's a community group in Austin called Communities for Recovery. They're actually one of the recipients of federal grant funding that we talked about before uh, with President Trump's allocation. And they are advocating and working with state-level partners at the hubs to getting folks connected to long-term community-based support. So that's a successful example of, hey, we have a community uh, partnership with the state-sponsored hubs and we want to see more of those partnerships happening throughout the state of texas
0: i really like that that's not one that i i've seen some of these documentaries on uh, the use of drug courts to help tackle this but i hadn't seen anything before today on the hub and smokes, spokes model so mm-hmm. <clears throat> i really like that um it it occurs to me that um for most of these things, the challenge is resources, right, and having adequate funding and uh, and money for them. And it's really, uh, it remains really challenging, particularly at the federal level, uh, when in a kind of anti-tax, tax cut mentality that we are sort of in as a country at the federal level, it's always really kind of sad to think that these solutions, we know how to solve them, we actually know what would kind of, Take care of this, but we're unwilling to put enough collective resources into providing these resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you identify really nice solutions here, so um, thank you for that. Um, is there anything else about the opioid epidemic or uh, what, that you learned as part of this project that, that we haven't touched on or that you want to reiterate uh, for the audience?
2: I just think personally that um, Not being reactionary, but being preventative is the key. You think back to like uh, September 11th, that a lot of the systems that we have nowadays weren't in place because some major event hadn't happened yet. Um, And so in Texas, not saying something along the lines of September 11th or anything of that magnitude, but opioids is an issue in Texas, and it would be better to deal with preventing and treating it now than waiting for it to potentially get out of hand if things change in the future.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having the conversation with me. Thanks for sharing your work. And uh, hopefully it's uh, informative for those that want to learn a little bit more about the opioid crisis, particularly here in Texas. So thanks for all your work.